Well, it's uh, objection time. In this episode, I'm going to uh, we're going to pursue the long-awaited, uh, highly anticipated, even Mr. Producer is excited, response to the kinds of questions and objections that I've been getting uh, by my invitation at the end of podcasts. Uh, and uh, in things that I do and say in the public space, objections and questions about electric cars and in particular, you know, renewables and the minerals needed to build all of them. I've asked to many podcasts uh, that send me questions. Some people have, and I get some of them in emails and some of them when I uh, publish articles and some of them when I give speeches, lectures. So what I've done is, is tried to assemble, in my mind at least, for your for your edification, the the kinds of questions I get into a, a set of assertions and specific questions. I've uh, curated them, if you like. But before I uh, I respond to the objections, my curation of objections and questions about my thesis in energy domains, which is that the energy transition is not happening in the in the way that's being claimed, nor will happen in the timeline, in the manner which is being pursued and claimed. Before I get to those objections, let, let me observe and, and simplify the classes of objections and, and questions. That there's, you know, you could you can bucket the kinds of things, the kinds of responses I get into three three categories, three classes. First, I get questions, of course, and objections that come from well-meaning, true believers that there's a great energy transition going on that has to happen. Uh, you know, the world that's going to be dominated utterly by electric vehicles, windmills, and solar panels, that, and that we won't need hydrocarbons anymore. That, that constituency of people who believe that, they're what I call true believers, uh, they often object to things I've written and said because it runs counter to that narrative. It's like, you know, just noise that should be discounted because of the source of the noise. That is, the statements from someone like me, or me in particular, come from somebody that is conservative or because of where they work, for the Manhattan Institute in my case, which is for the record, a right of center think tank, or because they work episodically with or for the oil industry. And of course the oil industry is not to be trusted. So that there's that sort of that kind of bias that animates some questions. And it's not that people ask questions in that domain aren't well-meaning or believe what they believe. I'm not criticizing that, it's that, the underlying psychological bias makes it difficult sort of to penetrate that barrier because you're just being discounted. And then there's the, the group of uh, people who object to things that I've written and said that come from a, a small minority, but a very high profile vocal activists. Again, this is not the well-meaning true believers of a great transition, but the activists the who, who are utterly anchored in what I would view as an ideological belief that the great transition is happening, has to happen. And it's really the political ideology that's that's around this. It's not, it's as if the behavior of electrons is dictated by what, what you believe in politically. And for that group, that's kind of that's kind of where they are. And they may be just ideological, political true believers. They may be to be unkind kleptocrats. That is, that's their business. That's where they make all their money, that they are um consultants to or purveyors of or manufacturers of uh, windmills or solar panels or batteries. 
And I, and I like all those technologies, as I've said many times, but there's a big difference between liking the technologies and understanding them and then believing that they are sort of the salvation to all of humanity's energy and environmental ills. Fortunately, that's a minority um, numerically, and it's not a, a, a constituency that I'm addressing, obviously, my podcast too, or this episode in objections. And then let me not belabor this, but there's a third group of uh, people who have questions and raise objections to things that I've said or written in podcasts and public spaces like Wall Street Journal and other, you know, real clear, or my book, for that matter, to mention my book again, which I do uh, for obvious reasons. There's a constituency that uh, they're smart people. Um, they aren't deeply knowledgeable about the underlying domains that are relevant to energy technologies. And they get most of their facts uh, where most people get most of their facts, which is from the mainstream media. Um, this is not an indictment. This is just the reality. People, Most people are busy and they spend their time reading at a topical level on things that are out, out, that are not in their specific areas of expertise or the specific areas of deep interest. And we don't have to go down a rabbit hole about the biases in the quote, mainstream media. Uh, but that's a whole separate discussion, a separate episode. I've spent a lot of my life dealing with, arguing with, um, friends with, frenemies of uh, people in the mainstream media, journalists, many, many really good journalists. Like a really good journalist is a, a truly magical thing. A really good journalist uh, is not does not only has a, a, an acquiring mind, but a facility for reducing the complex to the simple, both in uh, in writing and in speaking. So it's good journalists are terrific. They're critical. But anyway, not to digress. The point is mainstream media writing about technical subjects is a priori, somewhat superficial, it's not technical literature, and impacted by the writer's own biases and knowledge and who they choose to talk to. So you sort of have to, it's not that hard to drill down a level past mainstream media claims about batteries or solar panels or oil or coal or electric transmission. You have to, you can use, you don't have to go to Google Scholar. You can use the standard Google machine to drill down a layer and find professional class publications and technical literature, science publications that are don't require subscriptions. And you you can learn a lot more, uh, but it takes time. Uh, and most people don't do that. So hence their, their information-based, their knowledge-based, their bias-based comes from the mainstream media. So that's the that last group. That's the cohort that I'm, it's in my head that I'm addressing when I do podcasts and when I write. And those are the people's questions that I'm most interested in answering and will answer today or objections. So let's start. The, the, the most common the most common objection to the my assertions that electric vehicles, for example, are not going to uh, are not going to take over the world quickly. And say never, but not going to take over the world in the time frames people are claiming, uh, comes back with citing some breakthrough. It's the breakthrough objection, breakthrough in battery technology. I think we're probably pretty close to, well, we certainly have a weekly news story about a battery breakthrough. We're on track to a one a day uh, battery breakthrough news story somewhere. Um, so the breakthrough word is, is a classic clickbait word used when it comes to pretty much anything, certainly when it comes to battery technologies. And we see that the principal objection is saying, well, look, electric vehicles have a, a problem anchored fundamentally in the battery 
The battery is a very heavy uh, machine for fueling a, an untethered vehicle. A vehicle is not on a track or, or bolted down. Uh, it's heavy and it weighs a half ton if it's a regular car. And that causes all kinds of problems compared to using, say, 80 pounds of gasoline. All kinds of challenges upstream, getting the minerals, but also as a practical matter in the vehicle itself. The cost of the vehicle, how you can operate the vehicle, how you can fuel it, how long it takes to fuel it, all those things. So the standard answer is, well, you, you're not taking into account breakthroughs in technology. Look, all these breakthroughs are happening in battery technology. We hear about them all the time. So let's stipulate two things. There will be, there haven't yet been, but there will be another breakthrough in battery technology. It will happen. I, I think you can take that to the bank, as they say. Not to the Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> anyway, you can take that to the bank that there will be a breakthrough in battery technology. That's not the point. The point is, when can you make and how can you make batteries at scale that are useful, that employ a new breakthrough technology? There's a very long timeline between the chemistry discovery and this is something I've talked about before, between a chemistry discovery or a physics discovery and making and scaling a new technology. And I, I use as an example, the lithium battery, because it's not an exception, it's in fact, the rule. Lithium battery chemistry was a genuine breakthrough. The three engineers and scientists who were credited with it received a Nobel prize appropriately enough, but it was a breakthrough that began in the mid seventies. And we didn't see practical expensive lithium batteries until the early 90s. And then we didn't see batteries scaled and cheap enough and big enough and useful enough to make an electric car that was useful, albeit expensive, until the first Tesla S sedan, which was introduced in uh, 2012. So it took a long time, right? That's, that's decades from the epiphany, the breakthrough to making useful manufacturable technology that was very expensive and therefore useful for niche markets, and then making it at scale useful for bigger markets like cars and then all kinds of applications. And then now where we have electric cars that comprise uh, almost 1% of the vehicles on the road. So the long timeline, three decades. Could you accelerate that? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but not a lot. Uh, breakthrough, to commercial viability, from commercial viability, to commercial insertion at some scale. It's a by rule of threes, which I've covered before in earlier episodes, uh, written about. Uh, that timeline from one to two decades per stage, and there's three stages that I just described, is typical in, in modern history for technologies of scale. That is technologies that are breakthroughs. So there will be battery breakthroughs. Uh, the latest breakthrough we heard about was front page of the Wall Street Journal, I think. It was made made the rounds in the social media of uh, University of Rochester's team that did something really remarkable, which I would I would call a breakthrough. Uh, they they discovered and synthesized a class of material that can operate it as a superconductor at far higher temperatures and lower pressures uh, than has ever been achieved. Uh, if if there's ever a room temperature low cost superconductor that's invented, and that's not it yet, by the way. That would be a breakthrough of astonishing proportions. I wouldn't call it equal to the discovery of fire. It would be more more akin to equal to the, the Edison, you know, Thomas Edison's uh, first um, electric generator. 
I mean, it's that kind of, I mean, it's a big deal. It will be a big deal when it happens. And it will take, it will take, uh, it will take decades, not, not years to scale, but it hasn't happened yet. Same is true in all the chemistry classes of batteries, all the new chemistries and batteries that are beginning to scale uh, are not breakthroughs. They're incremental improvements. Okay. That's just, that's the world we live in. That's the inertia of big systems. That's the inertia of making systems that society scales that are safe and expensive and reliable. Another uh, very common uh, assertion to sort of change change gears. I hear it hear it all the time, uh, both because of this podcast and because of things I've written and said, is that if people if people and and politicians and there's a relationship with what people believe politicians often follow. If if people and politicians really understood uh, how important it is to conquer the climate problem, they'd uh, be much more supportive of all the solutions, even if they're expensive, that the government is mandating, proposing, and subsidizing, both in, in the United States and in Europe. Or put differently, the assertion is maybe more like this, that the oil and gas industry has confused people, right? They, they've, been, they've been running a, um, a narrative that's created climate confusion, if you like, that's the narrative. Okay, um, this is actually testable, a testable uh, theory, right? This is uh, unlike many theories that aren't testable because you have to wait a long time to see the results. This is testable. Uh, we could we could do two things. Um, one is take a look at the budgets of the oil and gas industries that's devoted to public relations and lobbying. Uh, pub- that's public information because most of them are public companies. Uh, and compare it to the budgets of the environmental organizations that do the same thing, that do public information and lobbying. It, it, it's a surprise and a shock to most people. And this you can actually find in the Google machine, that the collective budgets of the environmental organizations that, that that don't build things, let's just stipulate, the only purpose of an environmental organization is information, dissemination, and lobbying, perfectly legal activities in our economy, thank goodness. Um, it's, it's measured in the tens of billions of dollars uh, annually. Uh, it's at least 10 times bigger budget than the collective oil and gas industry spends on lobbying and public relations combined. If you, even if you assume all of the oil and gas industry's lobbying and public relations is entirely devoted to countering a climate uh, narrative and energy narrative, uh, you, you can't even come close to closing that gap. Another uh, test of the theory that the, uh, the big oil, if you like, has been success, successful in promulgating climate confusion and therefore impeding the inevitable energy transition would be to look at you know surveys and polls. What do people believe? And again, you can find this by using the Google machine, looking up Gallup polls and other Pew, Pew polls and reliable polls done by independent pollsters uh, who ask questions about these issues. And, and here's maybe this is a shock to, to some of you. Um, it wasn't particularly a surprise to me. If, if you test not whether or not the American population broadly believes believes that climate change is quote real and that something should be done about it, just those two tests: of do 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 most people believe it's a problem and that we should do something about it? The government, we meaning broadly, it's it overwhelmingly the case that people believe the, the data are incredible. I mean, it depends on how you ask the question, but if you prompt a question on this, you find anywhere from two thirds to three quarters of the American population uh, believes that it's real, and a higher percentage believes something should be done about it. So, if the if the oil and gas industry or and the coal industry, but they've been sort of lost and ignored in all this debate, I guess, uh, 
were trying to um, confuse people, they surely failed. <laughs> it's an ep epic failure. What a waste. If they've been trying and spending money on it, they certainly wasted their money. Uh, and I, and again, bear with me on this. I am not, if you have noticed, saying anything about the veracity of claims. This is not what this is not what's what's be this is not what's at issue here. The veracity of claims about the magnitude of climate change, the velocity of climate change, who's pushing it, who believes it, who doesn't believe it. This is simply a question about whether or not people are confused and therefore would or would not support policies that are designed to, to help affect an energy transition. Whether people, in fact, are confused or not isn't the point about whether whether the science is true or not is not the point. It is clear from survey data, and it's been clear for years, that there is no confusion in the public mind about the issue. Overwhelming majority of the U.S. population believe at some level that there's both climate change going on and the government should do something about it. So you can't, you know, it's the, the that argument just fails on its face that this is a, a problem. I guess you'd say it's a problem for me who have, has been writing and saying that uh, about the climate solution thing is that then we get to a different question. Okay, if the counterparty asking the question uh, finds what I'm saying credible or believable, but they believe that we got to do something about climate change, but they reach the conclusion with me the things that we are now doing to reduce carbon dioxide emissions won't work. The inevitable question is, well, what should we do? That is a topic for an, another day, another episode entirely. There are lots of things we can do about changing how we produce and use energy, but very few of them are the things that we're actually doing. No. Anyway, so let's look at another objection um, that comes up all the time, is that the problem the United States has with respect to an equity energy transition is that there are too many subsidies for the oil and gas industry, and that those subsidies distort the free market, and that we have to eliminate those subsidies, and then we can uh, get a level playing field. Well, let me just make it as, a, as a, a point of principle. I guess I would be in favor of eliminating all subsidies and all mandates with regard to energy, supplying energy for society. Uh, if we did that on a level playing field, eliminate all of them, I would, uh, I'll make the assertion, and we can, again, subject for another day, I'll just make the assertion that were that to happen, there would be far fewer windmills, solar panels, and electric cars in the world than there are right now, and it would slow down the adoption of those technologies and accelerate the use of oil, gas, and coal, because as the state of the play we have now is entirely because of not subsidies for oil and gas, but subsidies, both implicit and explicit, for electric cars, windmills, and solar panels. The oil and gas industry, and again, you can use the magic Google machine to find uh, government accountability uh, office studies, congressional research service studies. Um, you can find all manner of government studies. And the government, of course, is is generally pretty good at reporting its subsidies. That's what, what the one thing they're good at doing, uh, that, that document the implicit and explicit direct and indirect subsidies, oil, gas, wind, solar, et cetera. And oil and gas industry subsidies are a tiny fraction of the subsidies historically in the last 20 years for electric cars and windmills and solar and all the things related to that, whether hydrogen, all. And, Lately, of course, the asymmetry is even even wider and bigger. There's just no data to support that. It's just not in not in the data. But you know, 
it's reasonable to say that subsidies distort, distort markets. Uh, I, I agree. And to the extent that they distort oil and gas markets, fair enough. They certainly are distorting electricity markets for uh, wind and solar and uh, and automobile markets. And maybe is beyond obvious. All right, let's do an, another objection. Um, what, what, one of the most common responses to my observation that there aren't enough metals being mined or planned planned to be mined to meet the transition, that is to restate. For those of you who haven't listened to previous episodes, I have said many times and written, based on the data from organizations from World Bank, International Energy Agency, geological surveys, this is not, quote, industry data, but government and research data, that the quantity of, of metals and minerals needed to be mined to build wind and solar and battery machines, electric cars, is vastly greater than is, than is now being mined. And by greater, not just 10% greater, 50% greater, but from 400% to 4,000, 8,000% increase in the mining, uh, the global mining of quantities of metals and materials needed to build energy machines is vastly greater than the world now mines or that's plan, planning to mine, not just a little more, but from 400% to 4,000% and even greater increases in mining are needed to produce the various minerals, minerals, the so-called energy minerals, to fabricate the machines at the center of the proposed energy transition compared to the quantities needed to build hydrocarbon energy machines that today supply over 80% of the world's energy. The response, the objection to this observation, this reality, is that market forces will, will respond, that market forces are very powerful, and indeed they are. Well, it's that market forces solve it we can we can you know, between market forces and advances in technology we can we can solve this problem well yes of course i i'm i have said many times i'll say it again market forces and technology will expand our capacity to produce uh, minerals and mines and it has over over all of modern history it, that that is not in dispute the issue you have to dig into is how fast can they respond how fast can you open mines how fast how fast can you the new technologies get deployed in that sector? Just like the invention of batteries in the breakthroughs there, breakthroughs in mining technologies are few and far between. Many take a long time to implement. But there are some extremely interesting technologies that are emerging now in the mining sector. We talked about that in an episode about mining uh, a few episodes ago. But there's no question that's true. Again, velocity velocity matters, right? The So when, when studies come out um, to counter the narrative, so the narrative framed correctly, I think, is that we're not going to mine enough materials um, based on our current plans, and nor can we mine them fast enough. Then we get studies come out. I know McKinsey did one. I think um, others have, you know, not, not just to pick on McKinsey, pointing out that there are technologies available now that are starting to, to be deployed by the mining industries that can reduce the amount of time it takes uh, to open a new mine by as much as 25%, you know, 20%, 30%. Okay. In fact, I'm just kind of assuming that those are already underway in my in my own writing and calculations. And in fact, will be implemented faster than, than otherwise would be the case. So that the world average time that the IEA reports to open a new mine, the world average time is 16 years from discovery of an ore body worthy of a mining to opening it. I'm assuming that that'll be whacked down to a decade that we could might in fact do that. It's possible we'll have the uh, regulatory and political incentives to do it combined with technology. That's still a decade before the first 
piece, the first pound of metal would come out of that new mine. And if we're not doing it tomorrow, if we aren't starting to open those mines tomorrow, then it's more than a decade. It's a decade from when we start the process and we haven't started the process, which is the essence of my point. So the objection that the market forces won't bring new technologies into play is, you know, uh, it's it's a misdirection. One assumes that new technologies will come into play. You do, again, you have to understand, one has to understand the velocity of these technologies. And of course, this has nothing about objections to the minds themselves. What also is accelerating, to, to stick on this point for a minute, are the objections to new minds globally, the environmental organizations that oppose minds being opened in South America and parts of Africa, in North America and in Europe, they've stepped up their efforts. Uh, again, here one can use the, uh, doesn't have, you don't have to dig real deep in Google. You don't have to go to scholarly literature, uh, do a little searching on um, mining and uh, environmental opposition to mining in Europe and in the United States and Canada to track the extent and uh, extent of activities and the intensity of the activities to uh, delay, cancel and object to new mines. We're gonna need new mines to build all the machines. No, it's not in dispute. We're going to need new mines to build a quantity of wind, solar, and battery machines. Nobody disputes that. Um, no one disputes that the velocity could be picked up a bit. But what's what's not being factored in here is the same organizations that are promoting these technologies, the same class of organizations, to be fair, are also objecting to the industries that needed to be expanded to build those technologies. So there's... The, you know that that get that you have to fold that into how you think about um, your objection, if you like. A different objection that comes constantly and all the time to my observation, and I am not alone in this. Um, we see this coming again, not just from governments acknowledging that we don't have enough metals, including our own government, and given the kinds of ideas that have been put in the so-called inflation, so-called the the. The named, but Orwellian named Inflation Reduction Act, uh, there's an acknowledgement that we're going to need a lot more metals. So they, one of the responses is, well, recycle them. That will solve the problem. If you recycle uh, the copper that's coming uh, from the uh, worn out old used battery, you don't have to mine as much copper for the next battery. Of course, that's true. Again, this requires some arithmetic and a little common sense. Uh, the arithmetic is done by just looking at the quantities of metals available from recycling versus the quantities of metals you need for the growth required. Or put differently, if you started recycling perfectly 100% of the metals needed to build more windmills and solar panels and electric cars, it, it would in fact reduce the demand over the coming decade, but not by for new metals, not by very much. That's because the rate of increase in demand is far, far faster, like 10X faster, than the rate of increase of supply from even perfect recycling. But eventually, that is 10 to 20 years in the future, if you had perfect circular economy or close to it with recycling, you can then level, level off the increase in demand for, for the metals. That's happened with steel, by the way. The rate of increase in demand for iron ore to make steel was slowed down by the, the, the efficacy, economic efficacy, by the way, of recycling steel. Can be done. I think will be done, uh, both because it's you know it's in our nature and not just in our laws to want to recycle useful things. Uh, that's how most people think. And when it becomes economically feasible, which is you know the intersection of technology that's cheaper to recycle 
steel casing that was the electric steel furnace, which is used for recycling metals, not for creating what's called net new virgin steel, for which you still have to use coking coal, just by the way, as an aside. But the inevitable re reduction in the costs of recycling technologies and the associated uh, increase in costs of the, you know, the primary metals can mean you reduce demand eventually. But in the energy transition plans that are being proposed, imagined, and funded, the velocity of increased demand for metals vastly outstrips the quantity of metals that can be supplied from even perfect recycling. It's just an arithmetical fact. So recycling is baked in to the, the assumptions that are being made by all the analysts who point out we're not going to be mining enough metals. Okay, another objection that's come back, especially recently, is look again. It's a market force objection. The prices for the metals, uh, copper, nickel, aluminum, lithium, cobalt, manganese, the whole the whole suite of metals. There's there's more than a dozen of them that are needed. Those those prices of uh, they're not going to necessarily skyrocket. They're already starting to drop. Uh, and of course, that's true. If you if you track metal prices, again, that's public information. It's not the first thing you'll find, but if you if you use uh, a search engine and just and type in, you know, copper metal prices, you know, or, uh, you know, pick the date range you want, you'll get graphs and data from different organizations that track this. It's public information. It's true. We've, it's come off peak. Uh, metal prices, commodity prices, are inherently volatile. So what you want to look at is not whether or not we're off last week's or last month's peak price for say nickel or copper or, or lithium is what the trend line is. When you look at the oscillation around a trend line, it's this is the same for every commodity. It's also true for weather. It's also true for storms. It's true for all phenomenologies. Traffic, right? you could say the traffic is terrible today. Um, what time did you drive? Well, you drove at rush hour, to, what it, to the extent there is a rush hour in your city. Uh, doesn't mean the traffic it ha has been trending up to be more terrible. As you well know, you could draw a graph of traffic and it will oscillate daily. It's volatile traffic volumes. But if the trend line was up, you'd say overall traffic is getting worse. I have to build more roads. If trend line were down, you could have a day where traffic is worse. In fact, you could have a specific day, a specific time where traffic is getting worse at that particular time. But the general trend line is down. Uh, you don't need more roads. You just need to get, figure out a way to shift, the, shift when people use roads. It's the whole point of tolls, by the way, to try to setting aside the kleptocracy of tolls, but that's the, sh the shift when people use a bridge or roads. This is true for all commodities. They're, they're, they're volatile. There's there's all kinds of phenomena that cause short-term volatility. But what are the trend lines? Well, the trend lines in uh, the metals is up. So roughly speaking, we're off of recent peaks and uh, overall prices for things like aluminum, copper, nickel are somewhere between two and 300% higher than they were um, about uh, five to 10 years ago. The trend lines have been up. In fact, the trend lines for metals have been going up since um, the start of the 21st century. The trend lines for metals have been were trending down inside of the volatility for a century. And so humanity's use of metals rose at, uh, for the last century, the century of the 20th century, by an enormous amount. And yet the trend lines for overall prices for metals were down. Now the trend lines are up. What's, what's changed in the 21st century? Did the population growth rate accelerate? No. Did wealth growth rate accelerate? No, it's been, you know, the 20th, 21st century, first uh, nearly two decades, uh, or two, so over two decades has, has been running at the similar kind of 
economic growth rates of the the last two decades, or the last decade anyway, the 20th century. Uh, what's happened is we've we've really increased demand for metals for specialty things like, uh, you know, communications equipment, smartphones, computers, but especially batteries, windmills, and solar panels. That's the that's the biggest single change in metals demand that's occurred in uh, decades and decades. So, will skyrocketing prices uh, happen again? I'll make a forecast, uh, and I've made it in writing, but I'll make it here again. The skyrocketing prices will happen again because because the volatility is always there, but the trend line is up. It's not trend line's not down for all metal prices right now, and the volatility will be against a rising trend line, which means if we're in the commodities business that the, there'll be new peaks reached. So the trend line's up, and we'll get skyrocketing prices again. Uh, in the near future. But right now, the skyrocket, we come off the skyrocket peaks, but we're trending up still. All right. Uh, another objection. I got two more to go for this episode, just as a heads up and warning. <laughs> um, another objection is that, that we can find solutions. Come on, Mills, you're 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 being a pessimist, as as some as as I put in my last episode, the in, in the 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 deepest cut. You're being a Malthusian to think that we can't can't find enough metals or build these things fast enough or make them. I mean, we, we'll find solutions. The, the U.S. is in particular can find solutions to a stable, you know, uh, supply of minerals and especially, increasingly importantly, in the modern era of. Uh, of geopolitical conflicts, a secure supply of our minerals right now. China, again, for those who haven't listened to previous episodes, the U.S. is a net importer of most metals. We are 100% dependent on imports of over uh, a dozen metals, and we import more than half another two dozen metals, roughly. And we have become a net uh, exporter of oil and gas, but a net importer of critical metals for all purposes, including uh, the purposes of building windmills, solar panels, and electric cars. Uh, that's just a fact. Turning that around will take a long time. We can turn it around. We have the geophysical resources. We have the technological capability. We've just chosen not to do it. These are choices, policy choices, government choices. We've driven businesses out of here by both environmental and tax policies. And we've also seen that other countries have gotten good at some of these things and for price reasons uh we you know businesses have made choices to buy or uh commodities metal commodities from other countries or open refineries in other countries but it's just a fact that we're dependent and it's a fact that china is the world's dominant refiner of critical energy minerals and metals in fact their market share runs in the 60 to 80 percent range for critical energy minerals refining uh, their market, China's market share in the energy minerals space is close to double OPEC's market share in the oil uh, and natural gas space. So it's pretty interesting, um, pretty interesting dynamic. So the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and the Infrastructure Act both have provisions in it, and appropriately enough, and it's a good, a good thing uh, in a broad philosophical sense to provide incentives for uh, U.S. sourcing of critical energy minerals, critical minerals in general. The, the problem is in the old uh, adage, the devil's in the details. It's not that the U.S. can't uh, can't do all these things, mine and refine and produce the critical minerals. What we're doing instead, in, as a point of fact, is subsidizing the construction of assembly plants. They're called battery factories, but they're assembly plants. 
that will assemble batteries or EVs from critical energy minerals mined, refined elsewhere. So we haven't changed that. Uh, and what we're going to do by requiring in the act that some of those minerals be sourced in America is not actually find them sourced in America in the next decade, because there are no changes in the laws that make it easier to open the mines and refineries. That hasn't not happened in any of Congress's re recent legislation. The way we're going to solve that problem is through uh, regulatory and legislative leisure domain, which is a way of saying rewriting the rules in a way that will allow us to label uh, manganese, nickel, and lithium, and various materials is in fact being American-owned or sourced, but they will still, in fact, largely come from foreign sources. That's just the nature of the beast. That's what's what's in fact happening right now. So, again, the objection that the U.S. can find solutions to get its own energy minerals and materials is a valid objection. Yes, we can. We are not doing that. That's not what's going on in the uh, in the halls of Congress right now. It could happen. I hope it does happen. And I'll end this episode with a, a sort of a macro observation that is not technical, if you like, but political in this sense. Uh, the technical reality is that we need lots more minerals and metals for all purposes, not just for the quote unquote energy transition. We need them because society can't function without energy, without minerals and metals. We should do more of the mining and refining in the United States. We should have policies to encourage that and make it, make it easier for American companies to do that at low costs so that we have you know, a, a viable in, inflation-reducing path to producing all the products that we need. 100% on board with that. It's doable. Technically doable, we have the geophysical resources. So far, we don't have the political will to do that on either party. That's not, that's not in fact, what's happening. And I think it's what should happen. So this is not an oil and gas observation. Uh, if, if, you, if you would to come back to one of the early objections, this is, this is uh, an observation that's relevant to those people who believe we have to do far more to affect uh, an energy transition with using energy technologies and products and machines that do not increase geopolitical dependence, do not increase costs, and do not uh, push us harder and faster to increasing increasing oil, gas, and coal use. We need all, you know, this is, I've used this language before, it's uh, borrowed from President Obama. We, in fact, need all of the above when it comes to energy. That's been the history of the energy world. So most of the objections that have been leveled against my observations and my themes have not have essentially been centered on the idea that we can eliminate oil, gas, and coal, and that we have all these other things that we can do to eliminate the use of oil, gas, and coal. That's the objections are sort of animated by that that philosophy. Whereas my philosophy is different. My philosophy is we should re we should remove barriers to the increased supply of all energy sources that keep costs low and maintain sensible and realistic geopolitical um, exposures. We can't we can't eliminate them, but we can, can tamp them down. We, we need, in, again, beat it to death. We need, we're going to need all of the above. And that's the, the, sort of the essence of the difference. Not only the objections that come to my themes, which push back on the transition, but also, if you like, a philosophical difference between what a goal is. A goal to not use any hydrocarbons is very different than a goal to encourage the economic and environmentally effective use of all forms of energy. 
that's, if you like, a distillation, not only of where my philosophy resides, but also uh, how the 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 animation of objections to things that I'm saying about the impossibility of a wholesale and rapid energy transition. So that's uh, that's it for 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 sort of airing uh, other people's grievances to my to my uh, my assertions and objections. And I'll close by saying that again, if you enjoy the podcast. Uh, rate them on the platforms you use. Give us uh, give us a favorable rating. Uh, if you don't, if you have objections, don't <laughs> I, I, I assume you've been listening. That means give me a favorable rating anyway. But send me your objections, and I'll do another another podcast at some point in the future where we talk about uh, objections and questions. Uh, maybe instead of about energy objections and questions, we'll talk about uh, Chat GPT, artificial intelligence, and robot objections and questions. My as you know, my other favorite favorite uh, uh, topic areas. Uh, with that, uh, until next time, uh, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. Optimist.